We're kicking off Second Kings today. For those of you who are here for the first time, we have been journeying through the totality of the scriptures. We're reading through the whole Bible from beginning to end. We started a little bit awkwardly. That is, we started from the New Testament. It's not to say that it's awkward. It's a common place to start. Um, but we had we started from uh, from. <clears throat> Matthew, and we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all that good stuff. We read all those books in the New Testament, and now we are reading through the Old Testament. And so uh, really looking forward to that. We, we've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel, Second Samuel, we've read First Kings, and now we are reading through Second Kings. This is not a Bible study. This is a meditation of Scripture. Um, we are here to meditate in the sense that we're here to read the Scriptures and to posture ourselves to hear from God through the Scriptures, to hear what God is saying through the Scriptures. And I hope that you guys have noticed that as we do this, we will continue to cultivate. We're cultivating a relationship with God. Um, as you spend more time in his word, you'll notice, even if you don't understand everything that you're reading, some of you may be reading through the Bible for the first time and all this sounds awkward and weird. You're still getting closer because the Lord uses our time in reading the scriptures as a means of spiritual transmission. He's testifying. His spirit is testifying to our spirit. He's, he's connecting with us through the word. The word is actually not intellectual food. The word is actually spiritual food. That's why um, Jeremiah says, your words came and I ate them and they are the joy and rejoicing of my heart. There is a spiritual endeavor that you're engaging in when you spend time in the reading of the word. And so we're reading the word and after reading the word, We'll just spend some time just meditating and you guys get to, you know, endure what I call a rant. I've got nothing prepared today. I just simply want to engage with God in his word. So I, I kind of look to maybe help give you context before I share what the Lord is speaking into my heart for today. Um, but the real activity is for you to spend time praying as you read through the scriptures this morning. And it's not morning for all of you, as you know, there's people from all around the world. So for some of you, it's bedtime. For some of you, it's dinner time. For some of you, it's super, super early and you're going to go back to sleep. For others, it's in the middle of the night. For some of you, it's lunchtime. Wherever you are right now in this moment, I want you to pray. And what I want you to pray is for God to speak, to speak to your heart, to testify to your spirit, to say, hey, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Speak to me. Speak to me. Um, we're going to ask him three questions. And this is how we posture to hear the still small voice of God. Uh, the, the, the way we posture ourselves, say, God, what are you saying concerning yourself? God, what are you saying concerning people? And God, what are you revealing concerning me? That's it. God, what are you saying concerning yourself? God, what are you saying concerning people? And God, what are you saying concerning me? And what I hope happens as we spend time in the reading of the word, for those of you, it might be your first time here, but for those of you who are reading, what I hope happens is that you see the word in a different light. It may not have been what you've grown up to read or what people have been telling you, because a lot of people have told you about the Bible and what the Bible says, but now you're actually engaging with it for yourself. And so um, 
Let's do it. We're going to get right into it. Father, I just I thank you for each and every person who's here, who's uh, who's joined with us in this time in reading the scripture. Father, I just pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Open our hearts. Give us the appropriate posture to hear from you, Father. Lord, let's not engage in an intellectual endeavor. But Father, we pray, Lord, that you would meet us right where we are in different areas of the world that we are right now. Father, that you would meet us and and engage with us as we engage with you in your word. Father, convict us where we need conviction. Correct us where we need correction. Give us insight where we need insight. Give us revelation where it is needed, Father, that we may be strengthened in you this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 1. Let's go. Let's do it. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice of the upper room in Samaria and was injured. He sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire with Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Hmm. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise and go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire Baalzebub? the God of Ekron. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you come back? So they said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Baal's above? the God of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there he was, sitting at the top of a hill, and he spoke to them. Men of God, the king has said, come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And a fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Then he sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty men. And he answered and said to them, Men of God, thus has the, has the king of Israel said, Come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, he sent a third captain of fifty with his fifty men. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of those fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, Fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of fifties with their fifties. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord came to Elijah. Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he rose and went down with him to the king. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent his messengers <clears throat> to inquire Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. 
So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken because he had no son. Jehoram king became king in his place. In the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Haziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were, who were at Bethel came out of Elisha, came out to Elisha, sorry, and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And so he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elisha said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two men stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Elijah said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. (laughs) So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that a sudden chariot of fire appeared with the horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. He took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood in the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were with Jericho, who, who were from Jericho, saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Then they said to him, look now. There are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. But then they urged him till he was ashamed. He said, send them. Therefore, they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but did not find him. 
And they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, and said to him, Did I not say to you, do not go? Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of our city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. And he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up <clears throat> the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at him and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And the two and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled the 42 uh, mauled 42 of the youths. Goodness gracious. And he went from there to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, came, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, sorry, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now, Mesha, <coughs> king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So Jehoram went out of Samaria at the time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight, fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah. And the king of Edom, as they marched, across, marched about on the roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He poured water on the, hand, on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elijah said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, 
I will not look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musicians played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he, and he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall not cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every piece of land with stones. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly the water came by Edom and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered and they stood by the border and they rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities and each man threw a stone on every good piece sorry then they destroyed the cities and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it and they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees and they left stones of Kir Haraseth intact however the slingers surrounded and attacked it and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through the king of Edom, but they could not. And he took his oldest son who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Goodness. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha saying, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be slaves. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing but a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and pour it into these vessels and set aside the full ones. And she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. And she came and told the man of God. And she said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons live on the rest. <laughs> now it happened one day that Elijah went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. 
And she said to her husband, look now, I know this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room in the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned to the upper room and laid down in there. Then he said to Jehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he had called, when he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. And the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come. And when Elijah had told her and the child grew, now it happened one day that he went out to his father and to the reapers and said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to the servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And, and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called to her husband and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. It is well. And she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, it is well with you. Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, it is well. Now, when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone for her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he rose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of him and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. <laughs> when Elijah came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. 
He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, prayed to the Lord, and he went up and laid on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. And he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her. When she came in to him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at her feet and bowed to the ground. And she picked up her son and went out. And Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So he went out of the field to gather the herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it from a lapful of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. And they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, is there death in the pot? And they could not eat it. Then he said, then bring some flour. And he put it in the pot and he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread from the, of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly riped grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what shall I set this before 100 men? And he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them and they ate and there were some left over according to the word of the Lord. The word of God. The word of God. So good to see you all. So good to have you all participating with us. Um, these are a powerful, this is a powerful introduction to a book. And it's, it's, it's an interesting place to introduce it. And for some, it kind of makes sense. For others, it's a little bit confusing. I say that because the, the book of Kings, uh, Kings is, is, it's really one book that's been split up into two, first Kings and second Kings. And it seems somewhat awkward where second Kings is split up. Um, it does stop at the life of Ahab and it kind of breaks off at Ahab, sorry, it stops at the death of Ahab, not the life of Ahab, but the death of Ahab. And then it breaks off to the next portion, um, beginning with his son and then the one after him. But for me, it, it, it's interesting because I think even though it makes sense to kind of break it off here, for me, I would have preferred to break it off from the transition of Elijah to Elisha. That would just be my marker if I were to break this book up into two parts. Um, but it happens to be that in the canon of scripture, we break up the book in this way. So to God be the glory for that. Uh, nothing's missing from it. It's just interesting where it's broken up. Um, but you can see where it marks. It's marked where Ahab has died. And, and that's that's cool. I'm not tripping about it. I'm not stressing it. Um, 
But I, I do want to just stress the point that it isn't necessarily two separate books. Um, it's really just one story kind of, you know, articulated all the way through. And as I've talked to you before, and I just don't I want to belabor the time on that, but go ahead and check out the reading rants that we've been that I've been sharing with you over the past few weeks. But the thread, the the literary thread, the, the story, the the whole point, the thing that's holding this all together is that this is about God establishing his kingdom. And when we talk about the kingdom, I think often we have this uh, clouded perception of it. The kingdom seems like a, a, a this weird mystical thing. Uh, the kingdom is like this thing where, you know, we hear the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. And it's almost like it's this mysterious thing. It's not mysterious at all. There's nothing mysterious about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is essentially Eden. That's what it is. It's Eden. The kingdom of God is Eden, where God's heart, God's character, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's uh, his very being and his very presence sits. It's where heaven and it's where heaven and, and earth meet. It's where the, the, his justice has been fully fulfilled. It is where he rules without adulteration. He rules without compromise. It's where God has established and has made things right where God is and his rule is fully established. That's where all things have been made right. The kingdom of God in the kingdom of God, this is, there, there is no death in the kingdom of God. There is only flourishing and, and, and in the kingdom of God, there, there is, there, there's all things that is right. And so I, I find it critical to kind of point this out because this is really about God establishing his kingdom on earth again. That's a big part of the biblical story. I think sometimes we miss that because for many of us, when we read the Bible, we read the Bible to, to try to understand what's going to happen in the afterlife. Or there are many of us, when we read the Bible, we're trying to see, well, what do I need to do to go to heaven? Or for many of us, when we read the Bible, we read it to ask, well, what are things that we need to do to be good people? Or when we read the Bible, we're trying to simply understand what's going on in my marriage. And for some of us, when we read the Bible, we read the Bible to make sense of painful moments and situations in our lives. So those of us, when we read the Bible, read the Bible to simply get something out of it for ourselves. And yet the scripture was never intended specifically for that. Can it be useful for that? Absolutely. All scripture is used for instruction. I get that. But the main purpose of the scripture is to reveal what God is doing, not what we get out of it. It's to reveal the heart and the character of God and the mission of God and what God is trying to accomplish. Not what he's trying to accomplish. Let me, let me, let me correct that. But what God is, has, and is continuing to accomplish. It is about the will of God. It is about the kingdom of God. It is about God executing his righteousness and his justice. This is about us gaining understanding about what God is doing and for us to see what part we play in the story of what God is doing. There are often many of us who we read the scriptures to get to know what we need to do to go to heaven because for many of us, we don't really see the earth as a place to thrive in. 
or a place where there will be flourishing, but rather we see the earth as a place we get pulled away from, to be taken from. Right. You know, we we're looking to finally fly away. Let's give our lives to Jesus so that we can go to heaven. Let me ask you a question, family. If heaven was the goal, if you dying and go to heaven was God's goal for you, why wouldn't God just strike you dead the moment that you give your life to him? Like if it was about your personal salvation, if that's all it was about was your personal salvation and you giving your life to Jesus and you coming to Christ, and once you came to Christ and you had your ticket to heaven, why wouldn't God just strike you right there? Why? Has anybody ever thought about that for a moment? Why wouldn't God just get rid of you in that that moment? I, I just find it awkward and odd that many Christians simply are looking up and not looking at the grand picture of what God is actually doing. This was never about you. This was always about the glory of God. This was never about you, but it was always about the kingdom of God and what God is seeking to establish and the role, the privilege that you get to play in in the mission, in the story of God. God wasn't looking to take us out of this horrible earth, but God was looking to institute a people and bring them on assignment. I like that word assignment there. Purpose. I like that word purpose there, Oribel, because it is an assignment. It is, an, it is a purpose that has been ordained on a people to bring the kingdom of God to earth. God wasn't looking to destroy the earth. God is looking to restore the earth. God isn't looking to 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 destroy humanity and pull humanity away from earth, but he's looking to reconcile humanity so that all of earth would be restored in him. The kingdom of God is now the the the, the multiplication of Eden and the spreading of Eden all throughout earth. Eden was not meant to be a location. Eden was meant to be a status. And that's why we cannot find Eden to this day, no matter how much we look for Eden. They say Eden is in the Fertile Crescent, and they say, they say that Eden is somewhere near Iraq, or Eden was in this place, and everybody's looking for Eden, not realizing that Eden wasn't about a geographical location. Eden was about a status, a status in God. I say that because there are many of us who read some of these stories, but we don't read it within the great grand narrative of what God is looking to do, which is he's looking to reconcile heaven and earth. Heaven and earth right now are fractured as a result of mankind's sin that man wanted to do what he wanted to do. And so because man wanted his agenda over God's agenda, God cannot reconcile with that. I think sometimes we forget that God cannot be God if God permits us to be who we are, not submitted to his authority. If God doesn't deal with sin, then God cannot be God anymore because he is a righteous and holy God. And so now what God is doing is he's giving us access back into his presence and he's instituting a story about how he brings heaven back to earth and reconciles heaven and earth again. Eden is the fusing and the marriage of heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical fully manifest. I hope you guys are understanding where I'm at. Because for many of us, when we think about the kingdom of God, we think of heaven or going up to heaven, not realizing that the kingdom of God is manifest on earth. It is heaven coming to earth. What did Jesus say in the prayer? He said his kingdom. He said your kingdom come, your will be done. No, God is not looking to take you off the earth. 
God is looking to restore the earth and to restore your body in the earth that now you can live in covenant with God on the earth. This has always been about the kingdom of God. And God, from the beginning, has been instituting his justice and his righteousness. And so we see the whole story of God choosing a people to do this. The chosen people of God were chosen to emanate what the kingdom of God would look like. And the kingdom of God doesn't look like what many of us think it does. The kingdom of God is not found in politics. The kingdom of God is not found in the governments that we see because the governments that we see are manifest through principalities, through mindsets, through selfishness and sin. They're driven by self-seeking behavior. They're driven by power. They're driven by, and so all these institutions and organizations that you see cannot reflect the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God was never about power over people. The kingdom of God was never about economic economics in the way that we think of it. It was never about capitalism. It was never about socialism. It was never about any of those things. The kingdom of God was about something so different and distinct. It was about a life of continual sacrifice, a joining of one, of being one with one another. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of oneness. And yes, we have become people who try to define the kingdom of God with these false idols, the idol of Donald Trump and the idol of Joe Biden, the idol of Democrats, the idol of Republicans, the idol of capitalism, the idol of socialism. And so we have all these idols that we've created thinking that that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And no, the kingdom of God begins in your heart. Did you not know, as the scriptures tell you, that the kingdom of God is in you? The problem is not in the institution. The problem is in the heart. And the problem with mankind is, is mankind does not yet know how to submit to the heart of God. This is the issue that we're confronting. Because if God's going to establish the kingdom, God needs to transform hearts. And what God is showing us in this story, in this narrative, we get to, 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 to kings, and what we see is that the people are looking to establish this kingdom, the chosen people of God are, are looking to establish this kingdom. But in the establishing of this kingdom, we see this list of kings. The book of Kings is to show us that none of these kings were the kings, but that there would be a king that would be promised, that would come through the line of Judah, that would come through the line of David. This is what's been promised. It was promised to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. And yet now we see all the ones who follow David, those in the northern region of Israel and those in the southern region of, of Judah, that these guys aren't it. They're not it. They're not it. They're not it. And to bring evidence to them not being it, the Lord called upon prophets. What I hope you have noticed in the past few days as we've been reading, and I haven't pointed it out yet, but I'm going to point it out here, is what I hope that you're noticing is that there's a tension here between the prophets and the kings. All these kings who have come after the line of David, the scriptures tell us that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, evil and wickedness, understand this, is a deviation from the will of God. Evil and wickedness is not... You know, it's not just murder and pestilence and sex trafficking and all that, which we see all that here. We see it all. I mean, it's ugly. 
what Israel, the chosen people of God have become. They don't look like the kingdom. They look like every other kingdom. But you've got Israel, you have Judah, um, happily ever after. I had explained this yesterday, but I'll give you the brief cliff note version. Absalom was the uh, was the heir apparent to David's kingdom. But Absalom had <clears throat> um, Absalom went up against David and in going up against David, Absalom uh, had died. Once Absalom died, he had a son um, and, and Solomon was the chosen one for David and Solomon uh, became king. But then when Solomon became king, he sinned. And because he sinned against God, because really the story of Solomon is a tragedy. And the tragedy of Solomon is that even though he was given great wisdom, he fell to monies and honeys. And because he fell to monies and honeys, the Lord told Solomon that he wouldn't lose the kingdom, he, that he would lose the kingdom, but that he would keep Judah. Judah was on the south side of Israel. And so Rehoboam was his son who became king over the southern region that's where jerusalem was so israel was split into two and then the northern region was the descendants of absalom so david's got his family split into two he's got he's got absalom's descendants in the north and then he's got um in israel and so that was the nation of israel that broke off because of solomon's disobedience i hope that makes sense and so as a result of that we've got a line from judah and then we've got the line in the north in Israel. And what the scriptures are telling us is that the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, both of the lines, they all fell short. They all fell short. And who measures that? Who determines that? Well, the person who determined that is the people that God had instituted, and that's prophets. The prophets were men who were chosen by God to be the arbiters of the justice of God. They knew the law and their job was to call out the kings. The actual job of the prophet was not communal. Not like you see prophets today. You know, you got all these prophets today and they don't fully understand what the office of the prophet was. The Old Testament prophet doesn't look like the prophets that you see today. The prophets that you see today, you know, they'll tell you, you know, there's some that are Christian psychics, okay? They, they, oh, they see things in the spirit as if psychics can't. Or they see things in the spirit as if there aren't soothsayers that can. They see things in the spirit as if, so, so I always find it interesting how we, 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 we try to turn these prophets or we try to define these prophets as, you know, Christian psychics. And that's not what a prophet was. The Old Testament prophet was the arbiter of God's law. That was his job. His job was to speak the word of God and to convict the kings. Prophets were called to governments. They were called to institutions. That's who they were called to. And so they're called to institutions to speak the justice of God. We don't, we, sometimes we over spiritualize the office of the prophet. Say, well, the prophet is going to speak the word. So what is God saying, prophet? No, that's not how it worked. In those days, while the prophet was ordained and gifted with spiritual ability, the prophet was there to correct the kings. They were there to call out the kings. They were there to confront institutions and governments. Case in point, we just read here, when we see the story between the two women, 
when one when 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 one when when uh, Elisha comes to the second woman and he says to her, What would you like me to do? The woman says, I'm just a woman among the people. Go back to chapter three. She says, I'm a woman among the people, because the woman understood that the prophet was not called to her, the prophet was called to the nation to speak on behalf of God for the nation. This nation was a nation chosen by God. These are the chosen people of God. And so God ordained the prophets to maintain and to police the law. They were the policers of the law. They were the arbiters of the law of God. That's what the, that was their primary purpose. Because nowadays we have this whole different thing about prophets. That's not what the Old Testament version of the prophet was. I say that because we see here that there's a tension. There's a tension between the kings and the prophets. Between the kings and the prophets. Why? Because the kings are not submitted to the law and the heart of God. Yet the prophets have been called to call them out on their wickedness. Understand this. Cowardice is wickedness. Let me say that again. Ahab, who was considered the most wicked among them, if you read the story of Ahab, what you're going to realize is that Ahab was just a compromiser. That's all he was. He invited Jezebel into his house. He got married to Jezebel. But all he was was a compromiser. And yet what made him so wicked? What made him so evil? His evil was not that he did evil things. His evil was his compromise to the law of God. And because he was a compromiser, he did evil in the sight of God. Is anybody catching what I'm saying here? So the evil of the kings was primarily expressed through compromise. It was because they compromised the law of God. And so the prophets who are calling out the law, they were the lawyers. They were the prosecutors. And the defendants were the kings. The kings, because they were found guilty, were always at odds with the prophets. Always at odds with the prophets. Always at odds with the prophets. And we know Ahab dies. And now we see the story continue on. And we see the tension in, in 2 Kings for chapter 1. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we see a transition of power. And I, I know you guys have read some of the... You guys have read these stories before, so I don't want to point it out. I just simply want to point out what the Lord is really convicting me of as we get to the last few minutes of this time together. In light of all of this, in light of the grand picture, in light of the grand narrative, in light of what God is doing, because we're in a tension here, Kings is proving to us that these kings are not the kings. Remember that. Don't ever forget that. These kings are not the kings. Yes, there's a king that has been promised that's going to come from the line of David. Israel knows this. Israel is anticipating it. And yet none of these kings are it. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't embody the kingdom. They don't embody the kingdom of God. They're selfish. They're prideful. They're cowards. They're self-preservers. They're not, they're not it. These are not the kings. But there's one that's coming, though. They're waiting for that king. I, I, I want to make sure you understand this because I, I want to make sure you see this as we continue to read through the Old Testament. Israel is in a tension because Israel is waiting for that king. 
who is the king that's going to bring justice to the nations? Who is the king that's going to usher in the kingdom of God? Who is this king? And when is this is the tension that is being created in this text? And yet, even in the midst of the grand story, there are stories within the story. Stories within the story. First Kings chapter four is a common story that we hear often about Elisha and the widow's oil. And we hear the story and we, 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 we kind of know how the story goes, right? There's a widow. She's at her and she's at her last. She's got nothing left. And she comes and Elisha comes to her in verse two. And Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me. What do you have in her in your house? And she says, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And we know how the story goes. Elijah says, go borrow vessels from everywhere and as many vessels as you have, pour them. And, and until the vessels are full, just continue to bring another vessel, continue to bring another vessel. And then we know what happens is that when she runs out of vessels, the oil stopped. And she came and told the man of God in verse seven. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your son shall live on the rest. This woman, her husband has died. And her husband has left a debt that she cannot pay for. And she knows that the creditor is coming to make her two sons slaves. And so they're going to eat, they're fine, they got nothing. And the prophet comes. We see this juxtaposed against another story. First, you have a woman who's in debt, who doesn't have money to pay her debt. And then you get to the Shunammite woman who's got money, but doesn't have a child. And so she gives and supports Elisha, the prophet. Remember the role that the prophet uh, plays. She supports Elijah, the prophet. She does it without expecting anything in return. And yet what she gets in return is what she desires the most, which is a son. There's so much that I can share from this story. So much that we can see from the juxtaposition of these two stories. One woman who does not have, but has has children, and it feels like she ain't got it. And another woman who has, but doesn't have children, and she feels like she ain't got it. Both acted on faith, and yet their faith was expressed in two completely different ways. Both acted on faith and yet expressed in two entirely different ways. We already read the story, so I'm going to go to where the Lord is leading me today. One of the most poignant and powerful verses, for me at least, is in verse 2 in chapter 4. If you allow me to go back to it. This woman has a debt that she cannot pay. This woman has a debt that she cannot pay. And yet the prophet comes to her. And when the prophet arrives, she cries out to the prophet. And the prophet responds to her and says, what shall I do for you? 
he doesn't pause there and wait for a response. He responds to her with, tell me, what do you have in the house? This is incredibly powerful, family. And I hope somebody gets what I'm about to share right now in this moment. Because what Elisha is saying to her is what I will do for you will be a product of what you already have from within. He says, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in your house because the actual solution to your problem is actually in your possession. The actual solution to your problem you already have. As a matter of fact, what I do for you is a product of what you already have. <laughs> and here comes the revelation family is that the woman who responds to him and says in the verse, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Can I just stay here for a minute? Nothing in the house but a jar of oil. The story's within the story. The story's within the story. The story's within the story. We know the big story, but the story's happening within the big story. And this story that's happening within the big story of the many stories that we hear about, this story was written in the scripture because something needed to be revealed in that scripture is that what you have is enough. What you have is enough. She doesn't see it. But he says, but she says to him, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. How often is it, family, that we pray for a breakthrough because we don't actually see that we have the capacity and the facility from within to find our breakthrough. Our breakthrough is not going to come out of nothing, but out of God multiplying what we have already from within. What you have is enough, and yet she does not see it. She says, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. How many of us have prohibited the move of God in our life because of the word but how many of us have prohibited God from truly exercising his power and his ability through us because of our but? How many of us have looked at the little of what we have and not realizing that the little of what we have is just enough for us to get out of what we're in? This woman is in debt. She does not see that she has much. All she sees is she has a jar of oil. But what is being exposed here in the text is that the little that she has is enough family the little that you have is enough. There's some of you right now that say, I don't have much. I'm, I don't, I don't see much for myself. I'm, I don't have the resources. I don't have the money. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the, the education. I, I just don't have it. I'm, I'm, I'm living in the hood. I don't see opportunity. And what God is saying to you is you have just enough. As a matter of fact, your breakthrough is going to come with what you have in your house. Oh, no, no, no. But some of us, we negate. We negate the power and the move of God because of the butts in our lives. 
Oh, too many of us have buts. Too many of us have, well, you know, I, I do have this but, or ah, all I have is this, and, and, and yeah, I know God can do this, but how will he, or I know God, but I only have $100 in the bank, and, I, and, and yeah, I believe God can move, but then again, I'm, I'm suffering with this illness, and I know there's so many of us that have canceled the move of God in our life because our faith has restricted the power of God through our life. Hmm. Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And Elisha saying, what do you have in your house? Family, what do you have in your house? What do you have in your house? What do you have? Because whatever you have is good enough. Oh, I only have a hundred bucks in the bank. I'm negative in the bank right now. All I have is, what do you have in your house? The answer is in your house. The answer is in your house. And maybe you didn't see the solution because what you have in your house, you don't think is actually good enough. It is a powerful image of the gospel. And I'm closing because I, I believe this is the word of conviction for us today. So I'm going to close here. But family, I want you to, to pay very, very close attention to this. This woman is looking to pay a debt. It's the debt of her husband. Humanity is paying a debt. As the dead of Adam. The prophet comes. She sees that in consequence to her husband's sin, her sons will be slaves. And in consequence to Adam's sin, we have all been made slaves to sin. And yet here comes the prophet. And the prophet is speaking to you today to tell you that Adam's sin is not the end. What your daddy did is not the end. What your mom did is not the end. Where you come from is not the end. No, it's not the end. No, it's not the end. No, 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 it's not the end. Your, your maidservant has nothing. No, your maidservant has everything she needs. You have everything you need because of what is in the house. Because what is in the house is just enough to set you free. And the reality is for many of us, we're looking for a gift and the gift has already been given to you, Jesus Christ. We're looking for the solution. The solution has already been given to you. Jesus is the solution. We're looking to pay a debt that we cannot pay to be made slaves, and yet Jesus paid the price. 
Jesus paid the debt and it is being multiplied over and over and over again. Funny how all she had was a jar of oil when the oil represents the anointing. Funny how the anointing now does not come by ability, but it comes by faith. Funny how just a jar of oil could be multiplied simply by the number of vessels that receive it. Funny how we who are empty vessels can come before those who have received it and yet be filled with oil. Funny how all God wants is empty vessels. And if you would come empty before him, he would fill you with his oil, fill you with his spirit. Funny how we have the revelation already that Jesus is the solution. He is the debt that pays it all. And yet he's not just paying for this woman's debt. He's paying for everything she needs after it. He's not just giving her life, but he's giving her a life in abundance. And yet for us who have been emptied before Christ, Christ is going to give us a life more than the life, a life more, a life that is in abundance, a life where there's justice and peace and mercy. She didn't create any of the oil. The oil was given to her. Her debt has been paid, and now she is free. And now, the scriptures say in verse 7, you and your sons can live on the rest. We get to live on the rest. Family, you get to live on the rest. doesn't matter what you're going through right now. You get to live on the rest. What you have is enough. You get to live on the rest. God doesn't just want to give you the money to pay your rent today. He wants to give you what's going to sustain you for the rest of your life. God isn't looking to simply give you just peace for this moment, but he wants to give you his purpose in him and a calling. He wants a shalom in you, a flourishing, a putting together that for the rest of your life, you will live, you will live on the rest and you will live in rest. This is called shalom. So today, as we close in prayer, let us remember the woman who had just a jar of oil, who she didn't think that was the answer, and yet all she needed to do was to give it up to him. So find your jar of oil today and give it to Christ. Find your jar of oil and, and give it to Christ. Say, Lord, I, all I got is this now. Lord, I'm trusting in you and counting on you to multiply it. Give me what I need. Give me the sufficiency of today. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, there are those of us today right now, Lord, who have just a jar of oil. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us Lord, the faith to know that it is enough. Lord, your grace is sufficient. Lord, give us the faith to know that it is enough. It is by that faith that, Lord, your power can be activated, that you can move. Father, don't let us see our limitation, but let us see the capacity of what you can do with the little that we have. So bless us today, Father. Give us grace today. Help us today. Uh, we need you now, now more than ever. We need you now, Lord. Thank you for this encouragement that we may know, Lord, that we have been called by you and know that, Lord, you supply all our needs according to your riches and glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.